All right, well, good morning, y'all. It's July 3rd, so of course I'm wearing a sweater. <laughs> we were talking earlier, uh, before the service got started, and, um, and Steve uh, shared with us that it's 108 in other places. So we're kind of in a bit of a fix here, aren't we? Do we want to be someplace where it's warm and hot and oppressive, or do we want to wear a sweater on July 3rd? I, this seems to be working out for me. I can always put more layers on. There does come a limit as to how many I can take off before it becomes really inappropriate. What's the question behind the question? That's a sentence that's uttered quite often within my home. Questions get asked and immediately... The individual being asked the question knows there's something else they want to know. Oftentimes it goes this way, child one through five. Number six, I'm not really asking him a whole lot just yet. Child one through five, what are you doing right now? And they can already tell, daddy wants us to do something. <laughs> what? What? And sometimes it happens in reverse Daddy, um, are you busy right now? What's the question behind the question? We're opening up in Mark chapter 10 this morning, and you should go into this passage asking yourself the question, what is the question behind the question? And you'll be able to see it here shortly, and you're going to be dazzled by Jesus' response to respond to the question, but not the way they wanted the question responded to. This is a little bit of a challenging passage. doesn't quite fit a holiday weekend, but we're going to roll through it anyways. In Mark chapter 10, at the very beginning, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce. And what's happening is that Jesus is now making his way bit by bit slowly back to Jerusalem. And on his way, as he is traveling through Judea to get back to Jerusalem, he is once again encountered by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have a question. We know the Pharisees have done a lot to try and trap Jesus to make his life incredibly difficult. They've already figured out or attempted to figure out multiple ways that they can be rid of him. They have sent some of their own to follow him as he's traveled further north, way far away from Jerusalem, just trying to figure out what is this guy saying and how can we trap him? And then this question pops up. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I'm actually going to read the entirety of the passage, then we'll pick it out, pick it apart afterwards. So this is Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's the question behind the question? The Pharisees were not approaching Jesus with intellectual curiosity, trying to understand, hey, what's your perspective on divorce and remarriage? The Pharisees' aim was to try to trap him. The issue that needs to be kind of understood here is that there is just one law in the Old Testament that regulates divorce. Just one. And over time, there are schools of thought that then began to develop over how do we best understand this command. Here's the command in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes, becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. See, legal speak started long ago, everybody. (laughs) Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring a sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So let's remove the legalese. What is this law saying? If a man divorces his wife, and if she later remarries and then becomes either a widow or she divorces again, the first husband cannot go back and marry her. That's the only law in the Old Testament that regulates divorce. There are other examples of divorce that are expressed in the Old Testament. There are certain restrictions on the Levites, the priests uh, of the time, about who they could and could not marry. But this is the only law that exists in the Old Testament talking about divorce. But here's where the issue came. It became an issue of the word that for us in English is translated indecency, or depending on your translation, it might say uncleanness. Because it's not immediately clear from the text What is meant by indecency or uncleanness? And so over time, two distinct schools of thought were developed and they were well known by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene. There was a conservative school and a liberal school. The Shammai, they were conservative. Hallel, they were more liberal. Liberal is the word we're looking for. Shammai, they said that divorce is only justifiable in the case of adultery. Okay, so that's the very conservative view. The Hillel school said anything that a woman may have done that would have even disgraced or uh, displeased her husband was grounds for divorce. 
literally, if she burned the toast, it was grounds for divorce according to the Hillel school because if it embarrassed her husband or displeased her husband, then that was sufficient. And so now the Pharisees are well aware that these two schools of thought exist, and they're trying to figure out, can we trap him with this? Again, the Pharisees are not there because they are genuinely curious about Jesus' views on divorce. Instead, they want to trap him. And he gets trapped either way, no matter how he answers the question. If he sides with the Hillel school, then the Pharisees would say, oh, look at you, you're going against what Moses said. It would give him reason to then destroy him. If, however, he decided to go with the Shammai school, they would accuse him of going against what has already been commonly accepted and practiced, and they could have stirred up a mob and gotten rid of him that way. So what does Jesus do? If you look at the text, Jesus simultaneously dodges the question, dodges the argument, but answers the question at the same time. He's, there's two big factors that show how Jesus avoided the argument but answered the question and probably thoroughly irritated the Pharisees even more like, oh, you're not even giving us an answer to the question. The first is this, what did Moses command you? Jesus' appeal was, okay, let's go back to the law. What did the law actually say? And what's interesting about this is that law doesn't show up until Deuteronomy. There's four other books of the Torah, of the first five books of Moses, that are written before we ever get to this. And this law doesn't show up until about halfway through the book of Deuteronomy. Divorce had already been going on. And the Israelites, by this point, they were familiar with, particularly with the Egyptian culture, and recognized this is just a thing that you can do. It was God who stepped in to figure out, whoa, 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 we have to regulate this. And it was at this point that the institution of creating a certificate, making it an actual a legal transaction with the design of two things. One, to give the person the opportunity just to kind of repent and slow down, but also to protect the people that were involved. And by making it a legal act, God changed how divorce was going to be handled moving forward. And so Jesus appeals to that. What did Moses command you? Way, what does the scripture say? Secondly, Jesus appeals to the fact that marriage is God's good design and it is his gift. If you were to look again at Jesus' response about this, he's focused more on the gift of marriage than on the rules governing divorce. And that would be a really good place for us to start as well. We need to value and cherish the gift, the institution of marriage, this thing that God created. Now, marriage is under fire in our nation. I'm not going to get into all the mechanics of the hows and the whys, but if you've been paying attention for, I don't know, like four weeks, you know that marriage is under fire in our nation. And there is out there this random factoid that doesn't have any bearing whatsoever in reality. That says that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Literally, I have no idea where that information comes from. 
let me give you some really good news. In 2019, that was the last year that we have some really sturdy statistics. In 2019, the divorce rate in the U.S. hit a 50-year low. Low. There's 14.9 divorces per 1,000 marriages. That's a little bit lower than it was in 1970, where there was 15 divorces uh, per 1,000 marriages. 1980, boy, we could spend several hours trying to figure out what was going on culturally in 1980. But there's 22.6 divorces per 1,000 marriages in 1980. And so here we are, 2019, at least when these statistics were available, Again, where does this 50% of marriages end in divorce statistic come from? It's out of thin air. This comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. I, I swiped it from the Institute for Family Studies. I'm not just making up information for you here. But, and this is where we get into the part where we need to value marriage. While we can celebrate, and we do celebrate the fact that marriage has hit, or excuse me, divorce has hit a 50-year low, we're not doing so well in the area of marriage and promoting and encouraging marriage. Because the, while the divorce rate hit an all-time low, so did the marriage rate. In 2019, for every 1,000 married adults, only 33 got married. That was 35 in 2010 and 86 in 1970. Now, how to make sense of those two things together is, again, that's not the purpose of my time here, although it would be a fun philosophical discussion. But we need to be like Jesus, and based on these numbers here, it's imperative for us, particularly as followers of Jesus, to focus on the gift of marriage, the gift that God has given to us in marriage. And for us to recover and recapture for those who are younger than us, who are not yet married, so that they get the beauty of marriage. I don't want to put all the pressure on you, but mom and dad, it starts with you. I hope that your goal is to raise children that value and appreciate and long for a life-giving, nourishing marriage. And culturally speaking, what we recognize is that many marriages are just miserable. And though I don't have the statistics to back this up, it would not surprise me if we found that the reason for the drop-off in unmarried adults getting married is largely reflective of what they saw growing up. So moms and dads, I plead with you to invest heavily into your marriage. And if you're a young person hearing this this morning, I want you to hear that God designed marriage. And it is a beautiful gift. It's the kindness of God that he decided to allow man and woman to be joined together into a committed relationship. Yes, marriage is at times... Work, I was reminded of this, that marriage is not a 50-50 partnership. It is 100-100. Because it's 50-50, then you've got people that are not fully giving the full versions of themselves into their marriage. 
So yes, marriage is work. But marriage is a gift. When Dre and I were going through premarital counseling, our, uh, our pastor who was leading us through that, if you've ever wondered, why does, those of you that have heard about my premarital counseling style, why does Carl require like six or seven premarital counseling sessions? You can blame Pastor Steve King, retired pastor of Cherrydale Baptist Church, because I stole the idea from him. And one of the assignments that he gave to us as we were preparing was um, to put together a marriage box. And the first principle is that marriage is a gift. Now, that was 20 years ago. Um, I think I believed it when he said it. I think intellectually, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Marriage is a gift. Had no idea what that actually meant. Young, dumb guy in his 20s just knew that I had to have this woman for the rest of my life. Whatever I have to do, let's just get married before somebody else comes in and takes her away from me. But over the last 20 years, not just that my wife is a gift, she is, that our marriage is a gift. It is God organizing two broken, fallen people and saying, I'm going to make you guys work together. We talk about marriage a lot in our home. There are rules that govern future marriages. Our poor children, they've heard this a thousand times. So here's a thousand and one. They have to love Jesus. They have to be willing to work hard. And there's a third condition for our boys that whatever girl they bring home, they better not ruin mommy's Christmas. (laughs) But we're trying to portray for our children that marriage is a gift, that it's worth pursuing. And that's where Jesus is landing with this. Yes, he's answering the question, but he's not answering the question the way the Pharisees wanted him to answer the question. Jesus is much more focused on this is God's good gift to man and to woman to organize them into a marriage. And what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. But still, it's out there, and so we do need to wrestle with it. Are there biblical grounds for divorce? The passage that we just went through is in Mark chapter 10. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19. And it's where Jesus puts out there what's known as the exception clause. Mark didn't include it in his gospel. He's not saying it's not unimportant. He just Mark's writing his own way to his own people in a particular style. He's not going to be quite as comprehensive as maybe some of the other gospel writers are. But the exception clause, similar account, similar situation. Pharisees have asked Jesus. Matthew records it this way. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, 
Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what Jesus is saying is that in the event of sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. That's all that we get from Jesus. Which then leads to a whole new set of questions. And later on, God uses Paul to begin to address some of those questions. And Paul introduces what is known as the abandonment clause. That's what we call it today. Paul didn't call it that. He would have like, wait, you guys gave it a title? I just was writing a letter. We call it today the abandonment clause. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, the, the abandonment clause that Paul introduces, Jesus doesn't address because when Jesus is talking, he's talking to Jews. So, we're talking about two believers. Paul recognizes as he's going into these pagan nations and pagan villages and planting churches that it's a mixture of people and some are believing and some are not. And how do we respond to this? And so, Paul's instructions are, hey, if the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave the marriage, then divorce is acceptable. And that last little sentence there in 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called you to peace. You can be at peace about that. But still, that doesn't answer all of our modern questions. And there are a gajillion different scenarios, but... Four big categories. What about cases of physical, sexual, financial, or emotional abuse? How do, how do marriages survive that? And before I try to answer this question in a way that I think is most faithful to the text, let me say this. Uh, one, if that's your story, your church family grieves with you. And we don't treat that lightly. Secondly, if that's true, if this is part of your story right now, our deepest desire for you is that you get to a place where you are safe. And if you need help getting to someplace safe, and if you need help in getting protection, please reach out to us. It would be our privilege to serve you and to provide a safe place for you. Whether that means... Uh, literally like a safe place, like a completely different residence, or if it just means that you have a layer of protection around you, let us know. We're not trying to monitor it for you. We just want to serve you. But what do we do in this? I can already imagine that some of us are defaulting to what we know is said in the Old Testament, God hates divorce, and that's a true statement. He does hate that. But you know what? God also hates 
liars, and Rahab lied openly to cover up and protect two others. I would have a hard time saying to a spouse who is being physically abused, you should stay in the marriage and continue to endure that abuse. I don't know that I can in good conscience say that. Now, I'm not going to force you to get divorced. But I don't know that I'm going to try and convince you or compel you to stay. It should be entered into with grave seriousness. This is not something to be done flippantly. But I think in these extreme cases that divorce is permissible, and I'll try to explain how I got there. You ready? Say yes. Matthew 18, which is interesting that this, this comes up right in the chapter before in Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about divorce. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that in every charge, excuse me, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In the cases of physical, sexual, financial, or emotional abuse, if the spouse will not listen to you and will not repent, then bring one or two others and plead with them to repent. If they still will not, bring it to the church. And if they still will not repent, Jesus' words here, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is code language for treat them as if they are an unbeliever. And when you get to that, when you start thinking in terms of that way as an unbeliever, and then guess what? Paul's abandonment clause makes a whole lot more sense. In these extreme situations, the marriage was already over before the legal documents were signed. Let's not merely limit marriage just to a legal agreement that said yes and a legal agreement that broke it. And if an individual who is practicing this level of abuse, they have already abandoned the marriage even if they're still living in the house and even if they're still, if they haven't signed the document. Now again, this needs to be dealt with incredible seriousness. Do not enter into it lightly. And this isn't just for convenience. I want to go off and do my own thing. That's not what we're talking about here. That there's, I'm sorry, there's no biblical justification. Well, I wanted to do this and he didn't, so we decided. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about protecting individuals here. And if the level of abuse has risen to this, where the individual refuses to repent, And if there is substantial evidence and reason to say this person is acting in an abusive manner towards the spouse, and if they will not repent, 
If they are stubborn and cold-hearted and hard-hearted and will not repent. If there's no even a hint of willingness to hear from God on this. Then I have to work from the assumption this person is conducting themselves as an unbeliever. If I pray to God this is not true. But if you are the abusive spouse, please repent. Acknowledge your sin before God. Acknowledge your sin before your spouse. And acknowledge your deep need for help on this. Your marriage can be restored. But if you are unrepentant, it will not. So I have to try and put all this together. Three things I would plead with you to remember. Number one, remember who put your marriage together. It wasn't you. As smooth as your proposal may have been, it wasn't you. God has designed this. Secondly, remember God's design and intent for marriage. God's intent was for two people to become one flesh. God's design was, this, was for marriage to be a gift to man and to woman. And ultimately, as, re, as is revealed in the New Testament, that the intent behind marriage was to show the nature of the relationship between Christ and his church. Several years ago, we attended a wedding of some folks from a, a previous church. And the pastor was officiating the ceremony, repeatedly said, and I stole it. I did it in somebody's wedding. Sorry. I'll just, I have no original ideas, y'all. I just steal everything. <laughs> said, your marriage is for you, but it's not about you. Your marriage is a good gift that God has given to you to enjoy and to delight in. But it's not about you. It is about declaring the goodness and the greatness of Christ's love for his church. So I would ask you to ask yourselves a dangerous question. Does my marriage reflect Christ's love for his church. I'm going to take the pressure off of you. No, yours does not. At least not perfectly. But something that you grow into. And I pray for the health and the welfare of all the marriages of our church family. So remember God's design and God's intent for marriage. And then number three, remember that God excels at redemption stories. If your marriage is floundering right now, know that God can fix that. If you're struggling in the relationship with your spouse, perhaps you're married to an unbeliever and you're wondering, is there ever going to come a day? 
God excels at redemption stories. If you know that you have committed a a pattern of sinful behavior against your spouse, just remember that God excels at redemption stories. You are only one prayer away from being on track to make things right. My encouragement to you is this, and this won't be a surprise if you've been at Machias for any length of time. If you find that your marriage is struggling and hurting, recognize that all that you've done so far has gotten you where you're at. And so maybe it would be best for your marriage over the long haul to bring in an outside third party who can help you to see yourself and to see your marriage from a completely different perspective that you don't currently have. There is no shame in getting marriage counseling. Whether you do it through me, whether you find some other outfit, I'm more interested that you get the help that you need. So please, get help. Remember, God excels at redemption stories. If you're hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't do that quite right. You perhaps have the perspective that you think that maybe you have the modern scarlet letter on you and it's no longer an A, instead it's a D. Just know that in this church, that's not how we operate. In this church, we assume everybody's got a past. It may have not been your finest moment. may not have been your best decision. But remember, God excels at redemption stories. He's constantly in the habit of taking broken, fallen people and reforming them making them more and more into his image. It may be a part of your story. It may be a part of your past. But it is not your identity. And it is not who you are. Who you are, if you're a follower of Christ, is you are a beloved, adopted son or daughter of the king who longs to give good gifts to his children including that of redemption. It's that theme of redemption that then allows us to celebrate communion this morning. It's a tough segue to go from a message on divorce and marriage to communion. But redemption is at the heart of it. At communion, at the Lord's table, what we celebrate is the redemptive work of God on our behalf at the cross. That at the cross, Jesus paid the ultimate penalty to rescue sinners like us, regardless of what the nature of our sin may have been. But he also gave us hope for a future redemption. And so we would invite you this morning to come and celebrate. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what we would ask you to do is to allow the elements to slide by this morning. 
and instead consider the claims of who Christ is and what he has done. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to celebrate and to remember the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our sins. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the perfect redemptive work of your son Jesus on our behalf. We thank you that he has loved us with an everlasting love. And we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, now in these moments as we share in this meal together, I pray that you would drift our minds and our hearts back to what your Son accomplished for us at the cross. We thank you for his body and for his blood sacrificed so that we could have forgiveness of sins, assurance of eternal life in heaven, and hope and redemption for today, tomorrow, and all the days of our lives. Meet with us now in this moment as we share in this meal together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.